Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Don't mind me, just typing on my quirky typewriter keyboard. For anyone who doesn't know, this is a keyboard that was inspired by a typewriter. So it has actual keys, a return key, and a spot to put your iPad to type on. It's been so fun to play with, and we have one quirky keyboard to give away in our giveaway this week. If you go to mission.org giveaway, you can enter for a chance to win, or you can just listen to me type. We also have a second product to give away this week in our giveaway. It's the Muse 2 Brain Sensing Headband. I really like their catchphrase, sitting down is just the beginning. What's really cool about this headband is if anyone has ever tried to meditate before and you're like, man, I'm just anxious about this. I can't stop thinking about the day. So many things going through my mind. Calm down, Stephanie. It's time to meditate. This headband is really nice because it actually has sensors that provide real-time feedback on your brain activity, your heart rate, your breath, and your body movements. And it helps really guide the meditation experience. So we're giving away one of these one of the quirky keyboards, go to mission.org slash giveaway for a chance to win and good luck. I'm Alec Baldwin and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. On today's episode, we have Yves Berquist, an AI researcher and director of the AI and Neuroscience and Media Project at the Entertainment Technology Center, where he and his team are focused on researching and developing next-generation applications drawn from AI and neuroscience for the media and entertainment industry. Yves is also the founder and CEO of AI startup Corto which leverages deep neuroscience and AI research to surface what attributes of media content resonate with what audiences and how those cognitive alignments are driving content performance. In this episode, Chad and Eves discuss how the entertainment industry has traditionally evaluated new entertainment projects and how Eves is changing this with his deep neuroscience and AI research. Where are you based at? Los Angeles. Very cool. And is... Uh your startup keeping you there or are you traveling all over the world? I try to, to be very uh, disciplined with my, my travel because I have a family and I just want to be, you know, traveling all the time. But yeah, there's, we're going to Norway um, in two weeks for a conference. Um, there's conferences all over the place. I, I try to be, it's always hard to, to, uh, to say no to, to people because I really love this stuff and I really love talking about it, but you know, that's the way it is for sure. And, uh, do you find a lot of emerging information or new memes and theories at these conferences? Obviously there are some, but how much, uh, yeah, basically how much new Intel and new discoveries are you encountering? So conferences for me are mostly a tool to find new clients. I try not to rely on conferences for new information. Um, because otherwise, you know, I would be constantly gone and there's nothing more mind numbing than to attend conferences for, for weeks and weeks on end. So as a matter of fact, I have a principle that I don't, I don't attend conferences if I'm not speaking there Gotcha. just because otherwise I would just spend my life doing it's very hard already managing so many, I have so many balls in the air between my lab and my, um, my research and, 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 uh, the stuff that I write and my startup, it's, it's really difficult. So I try to, to limit conference attendance. And then, you know, the, the really, really interesting stuff, you know, I have a few people I really trust that I follow on, 
on Twitter. And I know that if it's not bubbling up in their feed, it's probably not worth my time. Very cool. So that's, I guess, a good overview of how you view information curation and how you're going about getting your, your intel there. Um, are there any other sources uh, that you prefer, um, whether it's like scientific papers or databases or subscriptions? Um, where, where are you going there? I think the O'Reilly uh, AI newsletter, sure, really outstanding. I think I don't think they are covering anything that is a waste of my time, and I don't think that there's anything that's substantial that's not covered in it. Uh, I think between that and um, MIT Technology Review, um, you're basically covered with the serious things that are happening across AI that you know that are noteworthy because there's just so much going on that it's really hard to to curate everything. Very cool. And uh, could you talk to us a little bit about your work at uh, ETC or the Entertainment Technology Center and uh, how that came into being? Sure. Uh, so how that came to be is I walked into the office of Ken Williams. I knew about ETC before, but I walked into the office of now my boss, Ken Williams, who's the executive director and CEO of ETC. And I say, hey, you know, um, you're the Entertainment Technology Center. There's, you know, AI and machine learning is this really big category of tech uh, that is very relevant to entertainment, but at the same time very complex and, and, and there's a lot going on. So do you want me to create uh, a track in your, in your institution that's solely dedicated to AI machine learning? And, you know, you don't have to pay me. I'll get it funded. I'll, I'll flesh it out. Just give me a business card, an email address, and an office, and I'll just take it from there. And to his credit, he said yes, because he's <laughs> that's it's the kind of guy. Um, but, um, and so, you know, three years later, um, you know, we, we've done some incredible work. We're doing breakthrough research. Uh, we're fully funded, and we're doing really exciting stuff. So it's really one of the things that actually have been probably the thing that I've been the, the proudest of uh, in, my, in my professional career is to take this thing from, from zero to 100 with, uh, with uh, Ken's leadership. And I think what's exciting, too, is that the uh, backers and the people that are funding this are uh, some of the biggest names in technology and media and entertainment. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how you chose to put together that group of uh, funders and what maybe some of them bring to the table that uh, is important for, for your group? Yeah, so I, I didn't put them together. These are uh, members of the Entertainment Technology Center that are funding the center and funding my work by way of, by way of that. Um, the, you know, I came to the center uh, really by, by chance. Um, I became aware of their activities and, and, and who was a member and at the level of, of representation at the center is insane, right? So the board is all the CTOs of all the Hollywood studios. And um, you have very, very senior executives from companies like Cisco and Microsoft and, and Technicolor, um, uh, Neil Nagrakodelsky, uh, um, uh, Viewbiquity, um, uh, Grace Note, uh, Nielsen, et cetera, et cetera. And um, very the most senior uh, executives imaginable in the, technical, in the technical organization for all these organizations. And the conversation is right there about you know, what problems do they have and what opportunities uh, they we would have to, to develop something that would solve these problems at a massive scale. I mean, if you look at a studio, a studio will spend billions of dollars marketing movies, right? If you make a 10% improvement on that across five studios, you can imagine how 
massive your impact is, right? So sure. you have a one-stop shop for the problem definition, and then you go and prototype solutions, and you have a one-stop shop for applying these solutions to the industry as a whole. So it's really amazing because ETC has one foot in academia and one foot in industry where you have the freedom of academia where we can try new things and push the limits and, and draw on all the resources that are across USC, not just at the School of Cinematic Arts, which ETC is a part of, but also the engineering school, um, the neuroscience school, et cetera, et cetera, the philosophy school. Um, and you have someone foot in academia and you have all the resources of academia, all the, the, all the freedom of academia. And then you have all the accountability of industry where if you develop some things that are really interesting and disruptive for the industry that solve a real problem, then you have the opportunity to implement them at, at the level of an industry, which is really amazing. And, and so it's a very, very special place. Um, it's really a, the, the, the highest level of conversation about technology and media. Uh, and, and it's just, it's just fun. It's like the, the, most exciting sandbox in media is etc and i think what's so exciting about this space too is that the uh frontiers and the rules are being written right now uh so as a market um how do you view the uh total addressable market for maybe like we could call it like new or emerging forms of media uh there's there's original content there are all these different um new mediums uh are there a couple names or is there some language from the industry you can provide us to talk about this? So I'll, I'll push your argument a little further. What the media industry is about, the, 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 the product of the media industry is um, stories and narratives. Sure. You're in um, marketing, uh, advertising news, uh, certainly entertainment. Um, you're telling stories. And you're telling stories that you're really hoping are going to resonate with audiences. And what you're really selling is brain states. And so, you know, I like to, to tell people that, you know, media is neuroscience without neuroscientists. Because you're, you're making and selling brain states without any kind of notion of neuroscience. And so what we're doing is we're like, hey, wait a minute. What happens if we try to really understand what is essentially neuroscience in terms of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Uh, and that's a very disruptive, I think a very disruptive way to think about it because you, you're really going back to first principles of the media industry, which is neuroscience and, uh, and, and storytelling. And so, and when you do that, then you sort of completely refactor the way you, you think about, about uh, storytelling. And so, um, I would say the total addressable market of stories. Now, what is that? That's a really interesting question, right? It's, it's across media, entertainment, advertising, marketing, politics, everything. I mean, relationships, uh, healthcare. Um, stories are the, are the, the biggest thing in, in human civilization. Uh, so the total addressable market is human civilization for me. And that's kind of really very deliberately how we think about it. Uh, we we don't just optimize. We don't try to optimize stories for uh, entertainment. We're really trying to figure out, hey, what kind of narratives, narrative structures, narrative domains, emotional tonalities uh, get people to behave in specific ways so we can um, better understand the stories that we're telling and the consequences of the stories that we're telling sure. and really try to tell stories that help people in a better way. So I'll give you an example. Um, conspiracy theories spread five times faster and five times further than the truth. And that's because conspiracy, conspiracy theories are a much better story than reality. Um, I want to find a way to tell the story of reality in a way that's as exciting, if not more exciting than conspiracy theories. Right. Um, 
you know, if you look at, um, uh, you know, violent extremism, for example. So violent extremism is basically when um, some type of mental illness meets a really, really good story. And you see it across ISIS, uh, you know, neo-Nazis, militias, stuff like that. It's really the, the, the reunion of mental illness meeting a really, really good and compelling story. And so, you know, that's, you know, we, we, we'd love to, to make an impact there as well. So um, the, the way, so obviously we're thinking a lot, broad, a lot more broadly than, than what the entertainment industry is thinking because, you know, they're corporations and they need to, um, you know, they have shareholders and, and they need to uh, they have their own agendas. But we're really putting this at a, at a very, very high level of, hey, how do we understand stories and narrative from a purely cognitive standpoint? And how do we understand what kind of stories resonate in what way with what kind of people and generate what kind of, of behavior? That's really what we're trying to do. And we're, we're really getting pretty close now. Yeah, and I think this is a great segue to start talking about de-risking uh, media investments. So if we think about stories and what they do for us as humans, they kind of de-risk the uh, the learning process, right? Because we don't have to then venture out on the on our own and get a similar experience. We can live through the experience of others. So how, how do you, how are you thinking about de-risking the uh, the learning process or the process of creating new blockbusters? I can tell you what we're doing right now. I can take some very, very concrete examples. I can't name the studio. I can't name the property, but... Oh, sure. Yeah, just an anonymized version. That would be awesome. Yeah. So for a very long time, um, uh, new entertainment projects were evaluated through what's called a comp system. And the comp system is uh, a, bunch of, um, a bunch of people... Uh, reading the script and and getting into a meeting and say you know well uh, this movie or this TV show is like these four or five movies and TV shows that uh, that we know of and uh, we're going to average the Nielsen ratings or the uh, or the box office returns of these five movies or TV shows that it's like and then we're just going to give us a target for our uh, for how how much money we can make with this project. Now, you and I can realize that this is not a very good way of thinking right. about things. And I think what this really misunderstands is the fact that audiences, media audiences, are in a radically, radically different situation now than they were even 15, 20 years ago. Because 15, 20 years ago, the entertainment industry had a stronghold on people's entertainment time. You know, you had a handful of studios and a handful of... of uh, uh, cable channels and uh, network and cable channels and there really wasn't anything else than watching tv or going to the movies or, or the theater that you could do with your free time so it was for all intents and purposes an oligopoly and i fast forward to now where you have virtually just tens of thousands of options for how to entertain yourself at any point in time and most of them are free um it's a completely different market for the entertainment industry, right? So uh, if you think about this from an audience perspective, you're really dealing with an audience of experts, right? So you and I and everybody who's watched TV or, or uh, gone to the movies are absolute experts in um, entertainment products because our brain has been trained over thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of hours of watching content about and that includes advertising and marketing content. It's been trained to recognize the good stuff from the bad stuff. And so when that happens, something really interesting happens cognitively. What happens cognitively is um, you have a very strong desire for novelty. Right? And so a lot of the risk models that 
are still applied today uh, really worked very well 15, 20 years ago, really aren't working very well today. And so what we're doing uh, in, an, in an environment where um, the key success factor is really how much novelty you're going to bring to a certain genre or subgenre or character type, then we just measure that mathematically. Right. We, we, we look at similar to like laughs per minute, I think is a met metric in comedy where this would just be a different metric, right? Yeah. So, so hopefully it's a little bit more sophisticated. So, so we, we, um, extract all the attributes and those are the character attributes, relationship attributes, emotional tonalities. And we have a database of about 10,000 scripts that we go out to and we look at intrinsically what are so it's natural language processing application that just goes out on its own it's a machine driven application that goes out and say hey this script that you gave me is like these five or six scripts on these dimensions it's like well the characters are have sort of the, the main characters have these uh, similar emotional journeys um, overall the script has this tonality the character relationships that matter most have this tonality so it's really measuring everything that the human mind will not gravitate to so I'll give you an example we're working for a studio and their producers comped that spy movie with other spy movies, which is very natural. Right? You have a spy movie, you're like, well, it's like Bond and, you know, and, um, and, and the Bourne Identity, stuff like that. The problem is it doesn't really, that doesn't really capture what the story is. That mm -hmm. captures what the genre is, what the type of film is. And that's substantial. It's not, meaningless, but there's an enormous amount of um, attributes about that script that have nothing to do with the spy genre that are have to do with the flavor of the script and what it's like in the flavor of the characters. That is very, very important because it's going to draw an audience that isn't necessarily a, a core spy movie fan audience, but it's really going to vibe with the characters. It's really going to vibe with what the film is about. And so when you're doing comps without us you're kind of really limiting yourself instead of going to see every single spy movie out there because they're really big fans of the spy movie that really ignores a lot of audience segments that are going to gravitate towards certain movies based on extraneous uh, 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 attributes that are, have nothing to do with the genre. Um, and so what we do is we then, then, so we have sort of a machine representation of the comps and then we go out to social media and we look at, okay, what are the audiences for these comps? It's a very kind of 360 degree view of what is your addressable audience? What is the comps for this script? What, is, what are the audiences for the comps? And we go to Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, we go everywhere we can to look at how many are there? How passionate are they about these kinds of attributes that are in your script? And how do you talk to them in a way that convinces them to go watch your TV show or see your movie? Right. So we're really trying to be as scientific as possible, as granular as possible in really nailing down very granular audience segments. And that includes, by the way, uh, geographic audiences. We can give you a list of zip codes where your movie or your TV show is um, predicted to do very, very well. And you can look at, you can do a, do a lot of modeling based on that to look at, okay, what is the size of my addressable audience? What is the size of the audience that we know have a 99% chance of going versus those that have a 65% chance of going? And then you can do some financial modeling around that. But it's a whole, the much 
better, much more scientific way. It, it's not perfect, obviously, but it's a much better, much more scientific way of looking at an addressable audience and, and comping your project. Very cool. And that's, uh, are we talking about Cordo, your platform there, or are we talking about uh, separate research? Uh, we're talking about Cordo. Okay, very, very cool. And yeah, for, for people who are just joining us or who are not familiar? Uh, Cordo is a startup, an early stage startup that is building um, a very comprehensive platform to help media makers understand the story that they're telling and predict how much the story is going to resonate with different audiences segments and to essentially create a microscope into media audiences for anybody telling any story. Very cool. And obviously, you, you know, you don't build something like this unless you're deeply passionate about a space. So wh- where did your interest in, uh, in stories or technologies or really uh, any, anything in the space, uh, what are your earliest memories? So I, I grew up uh, on film sets. My, uh, I was raised by a single mom that uh, was doing wardrobe uh, uh, for films in France. And so I grew up on film sets, which as a kid is, there's no better uh, environment to, to grow up in because it's just the most incredible um, place. I mean, a film set is one of the most incredible places you, you can you can go to. Um, you know, still now I go on movie lots, right? Movie lots are just magical. I mean, it's a completely magical environment. And that's really, I think that's what, and, and film never left me, although I did various things. Um, I was always a film fan. Um, you know, I wanted to be an actor at some point. I wanted to be a director at some point. So I've always been very, very uh, immersed in that environment. And, um, and I also um, very early on gravitated uh, a lot towards uh, psychology um, and, and cognitive science. And so it's really a way for me to kind of bridge um, to bridge the two. I also did a lot of research on, um, on terror back you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago. And um, I actually lived in Pakistan for a little bit and did some research on, on um, uh, military you know, networks and, and militant groups. And it really struck me that um, uh, a lot of, you know, the, the main question I asked myself is like, well, how, how do you get someone to then want to become a suicide bomber, right? And, um, in, in, in the course of doing research around that and around the psychology of it and the ideology of it, it's really interesting that it kept coming up on, on narrative, just very powerful narrative or compelling narrative, you know, meeting uh, a certain mental situation that is in search of st- narrative structure and identity. And so it really got me thinking about, about narrative. And then, um, you know, uh, if you if you start reading about, stories and and especially stories in film um you start realizing that there's a very algorithmic structure to it a story is a set of steps to solve a problem if you look at every single story on the hero's journey in hollywood it really is that of focused on uh solving a problem uh, and sometimes there's a personal problem and then a collective problem sometimes there's just a collective problem sometimes there's just a personal problem but it really is very algorithmic because a set of steps to solve a problem is also how you define a mathematical algorithm or a software algorithm and so you know the two are very very closely linked so that got me to really try to understand um 
are there, you know, expressions in a story uh, that are, you know, equivalent to expressions in math- mathematical algorithms? And sure enough, there there are. Right? It, and just, uh, yeah, question for my own selfish interest here. But how, how big is the uh, space in terms of researchers? How many other researchers are there out there that are, uh, you know, maybe researchers and practitioners? Um, where, yeah, who would you consider to be in the space? There are very few that I know of. Um, uh, there is, I would say, less than five, and 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 you know, less than five. Uh, I would say less than ten. Uh, some are still in the space. Uh, some I know. There's someone at University of Vermont that's thinking about this. Uh, Disney Research has done a lot of. Disney has a research center in Zurich. It's done a lot of work on this. Um, uh, Josh Heisenberg at the uh, University of Florida that now is coming to LA has done his PhD thesis recently on this. But really, very very few. And if you think about take it one step further and think about the neuroscience of narrative, there's virtually no one. Yeah, I feel like with some recent uh, pop cultural phenomena with, you know, sapiens and things like that, it's uh, it's only a matter of time before uh, the tech community gets excited about that. Um, and, and most most of them already are. It's just, I guess, in the uh, periphery, it's not in their uh, the forefront yet. But I tell you what, it's also really interesting because if you're studying it from an AI machine learning standpoint, um, the the way AI and machine learning is being approached today, which is through mostly neural networks, um, is almost entirely inappropriate to, to study narrative. Um, you know, neural networks are very powerful at doing a lot of things. They're not good at all at um, mapping low-level data, in this case, you know, words, to um, symbols that could represent the structure of a story. And in fact, the task of mapping low-level data, so words in their sort of, in their semantics of words to symbolic representation is one of the most difficult, but also most foundational uh, parts of building artificial intelligence. Because when you start building machines or machine applications that can truly understand um, uh, speech, human speech, or human narrative at a symbolic level, which is the level at which the human brain really understands it, and the human brain does that really well, um, then you'll be, uh, you know, it'll be a major step towards artificial general intelligence. And so that's kind of all what also energizes me from a research standpoint is that the problems that we're finding ourselves trying to solve are, are some of the biggest problems in AGI. Um, the interesting side of that is um, there is such a uh, focus right now on uh, neural network based AI that, and, and, and I'm, I'm pretty confident this is not the right uh, track to, to, to build what I'm talking about. We have a completely different philosophy. We have a completely different set of tools that includes many, many different uh, methodologies, including neural networks, to try to create this sort of symbolic representation that through which machines can not only uh, uh, process text, 
but also really understand text. And, and it's really going from machine learning to machine understanding when you have that, when you have the ability to map uh, low level data to symbolic representation and manipulate those symbols and really understand how these symbols exist uh, within a narrative, um, then you'll have a really big step towards, towards AI. Sure. And so speaking of uh, AGI, and as we move towards that, uh, is one of the things that we can do to prepare uh, just creating better human-centric narratives uh, and then putting them out there um, and basically creating, you know, more more positivity in our narratives? Um, is this something that's like a, uh, you know, if we don't do this fast enough, is AGI just going to be horrible for us? It's a difficult question to answer. What I will say is um, the capacity to articulate a narrative uh, which is what uh, Yuval Harari talks about. Um, that ability will be uh, the, the monopoly of humans for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the different kinds of knowledge, right, you have declarative knowledge is basically fact. Uh, Paris is the capital of France, is a, is a piece of declarative knowledge. And, and for that, we've already lost. Right? Uh, uh, Google is, is, is uh, a, a very good example of how now declarative knowledge is, is the monopoly of machines. And, and thank God for that, because that was really a stupid way to spend your life to just accumulate random facts and information. So I'm, I'm really glad we, we got that outsourced because that was a completely meaningless you know, uh, uh, way to, to spend one's life to accumulate facts. Now, the second part, the second type of knowledge is procedural knowledge. How do we build a rocket? How do we, how do, we do things? Um, in that field, humans uh, will have an advantage for uh, a certain amount of time. It's not entirely clear how long. Uh, eventually, machines will get better than us, but for now, um, uh, humans still have the advantage. Now, there's a third type of knowledge, which I've added, which is narrative knowledge, which is uh, once we are trying to figure out something to do, right? Uh, if we, let's say, let's say we have an idea for a product, we want to start a company, right? That's procedural knowledge. How do we how do we start this company? How do we build this product? That's procedural knowledge. But then narrative knowledge is what kind of story do we create to right. get people motivated to build this product? Which is ultimately the most valuable and hardest to replicate, right? Which is the most valuable, yeah. most symbolic, and is going to be a monopoly of humans for a very long time. Now, it doesn't mean that machines aren't going to help along the way, but it really means that at the end of the day, um, build something and sell something are going to be the two skills that are the most valuable in an AI or AGI future, right? Learn how to build something, learn how to tell a story that gets a lot of people excited about this thing. Those are the two things that we can be confident are going to be the monopoly of the human mind for, for a while. Very cool. And so I'm, I'm very curious about this. What is your take on uh, narratives and their ability? Are, are narratives something that can heal um, maybe generational trauma or trauma in general in in someone's life and uh where what's the research say uh, about that narrative uh let's just go back to the to our definition of story and narrative um we see narrative as an object but most importantly we see narrative as a process uh, narrative is the process of taking the enormous complexity of the world around us and compressing it into a set of steps that we can into a, a view of the world, a very compressed and summarized view of the world that is a procedural view of the world that helps us understand what to do in this context. 
So, um, you know, your, uh, you know, your, the way you dress is a story, right? You, 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 um, the way you approach someone, whether it's a stranger or someone that you have a very short interaction with or someone who's really meaningful in your life, uh, you're really creating a compressed narrative, a compressed representation of that person. And that representation is going to dictate how you act with that person. And so understanding that process, we think, uh, would be very, very important in um, changing uh, people's view of the world for the better, right? Uh, a lot of the times, I mean, if you think about racism, for example, racism is a type of taking the complexity of the world around you and compressing it in a, in, a, in a certain way that is going to guide your views toward different people, different races, different gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we can understand that and if we can understand what, um, what the, the process that goes into that and the, the variables that go into that, then we can change, maybe we can change the narrative around it and we can change the narrative in news, for example, in a way that... Um, uh, disempowers racism of its cognitive arguments. I don't know if that makes any sense. Sure, sure, yeah. The so you know we are really trying to figure that out right now, where that fits in the um, in society and healthcare. Um, frankly, I, I don't know. Uh, we'd love to find interesting things and then talk to people who would be in charge of applying them about how applicable they are and how to apply them and, and how to be accountable for it. Because if you think about what we're doing, it's potentially very disruptive. And so we really welcome sure. uh, debate and accountability and transparency around the stuff that we do, because we think that um, only through a community driven dialogue, can we make sure that we're doing the right things and we're applying these very, very powerful tools to create good in society. Yeah. And I think that the, uh, a lot like open AI used to be open source. Um, maybe there should be something similar like that, where there's some open research about maybe mind brain interfaces or what people's uh, brain does in inside an MRI when they're given certain narratives or something like that. Maybe there, maybe there's like some core body of research that could be available to the public or uh, no, do you, do you think it's not appropriate? It would only like slow down uh, an industry that's still too nascent where for it to matter i go back and forth on that i like open source because it's the most accountable and transparent way to create disruption um what i don't like about open source is that it's available to the good guys and the bad guys right what i prefer to open source is um community driven uh accountability around ai meaning that we are giving this to a group of people and researchers that are accountable to the, that are held accountable to the larger community to use it for good through uh, uh, the democratic process, for example. Right. Um, th that's kind of what I prefer to open source. I mean, it's a very complex question and a very multifaceted question. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, social media, um, social media was, was, can be weaponized for good and it can be weaponized for, uh, to destabilize communities and entire countries, right? So should we make social media, you know, the, the reason um, it, it is 
being so disruptive in positive and negative ways is because it's available to all. It's, it's open source, quote unquote. So the whole open source debate to me um, kind of maybe needs to be refactored a little bit. I think I would love to have a wider conversation about, hey, w- what does open source mean and what do we make open source and what do we not make open source? Right. And I think it the conversation naturally moves towards, well, it would be nice if we could like price the, uh, you know, have a fair price. And then it's like, well, a market is pretty good at uh, doing that. So uh, yeah, so I, I think it's uh, it's definitely an interesting debate and it's an important one to have. Um, so what what else is going on right now, whether it's in the industry or in your research that you're uh, like that is top of mind right now that you keep thinking about? Well, the stuff that I'm really excited uh, about is the stuff that we're doing uh, with categorizing content in audio. Um, we are building at ETC an application called Vitavec, which is going to take any input video and audio and uh, extract every single attribute about it. The idea. Uh, is to uh, create supercharged content personalization models and content recommendation models. Um, If you think about your favorite movies and TV shows, right? Uh, And I ask you, you know, what you like about those movies and TV shows, are you going to give me an answer that's very high level? Uh, Because even in your consciousness, you're limited in assessing things like, well, how much does the look of the Godfather account for how much I like the Godfather? How much does the music of Interstellar account for how much I love Interstellar? And and how much... A lot. If you think, yeah, no, I mean, obviously. And, <laughs> Hans Zimmer did a great job. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and music actually is, is one of the most kind of deliberate and conscious uh, attributes, but there's just an enormous amount of, of subconscious attributes. Sure. Um, uh, you know, camera angles, uh, color schemes, uh, you know, and how all of those line up with emotional tonalities of characters or moments in the film or how, the, how does... Uh, cinematography and and color and editing and music, uh, how do they stack up to represent a specific emotional tonality of a, of a character or a specific moment in the movie? Nobody understands that today. Right. We're uh, well on our ways to create a system that is going to extrapolate that in an extremely granular manner so that suddenly you have a giant library. And since we are, you know, we are the ETC and we have access to the entire catalog of the entire entertainment industry. We can train it on every single movie ever made. And um, we are gonna be able to represent um, any kind of video, any kind of film, any kind of, of media product across the, the hundreds of attributes that it has. And so what we're doing is, you know, if you have time codes, for example, for each time code you have what's called a meaning code, what then this could lead to is creating extremely granular content personalization and content recommendation models looking at um, color schemes and, and, you know, and uh, character emotions layered with cinematography and edit pace and, and, and musical tonalities and things like that. And really try to really understand how these moments that really kind of resonate with us cognitively that are so powerful for us, what do they have in them? What is the DNA of these moments? What is the chemistry of these moments? And that's what we're doing today and we're doing this year. And I think that uh, uh, would be very disruptive and pretty amazing because if you think about it, if I'm a, a, a movie maker, if I'm a filmmaker, a media maker, and I'm shooting a bar scene, for example, 
you know, if this system can pull up all the data about the bar scenes that were shot in the same context as mine, um, and give me that information just from a planning standpoint, it's it's so valuable. Well, it's not just valuable, but what I'm what I'm hoping happens is we're not delivering data to creatives to tell them what to do. We're delivering data to creatives to push them to not do what everybody else has done before. So maybe if you're shooting a bar scene and we're pulling data about, you know, this is how bar scenes have been shot, then maybe it's challenge. It's hopefully it's going to challenge the creatives to do something different. Uh, and, and, and maybe you're already planning to do something different, or maybe you, you were planning to do something that you're now realizing is very canonical and, and traditional in that, kind of, in, the, in that kind of scene, and then it's pushing you to try to innovate. And that's really what we're trying to do. And, and um, so we're, we're very excited about that. Uh, we're very excited about creating this conversation from within the creative community. Sure. We're spending most, more time listening to, to, than, than talking, to be really honest with you, because we really want to create something that uh, contributes to artistic diversity and creativity and is not constrain it, but but just unleashes creatives. Yeah, and that's that second part is uh, so exciting to hear. Um, where do you think the world is at for uh, creators in terms of making a living online, whether it's through nonfiction or fiction storytelling? I see that world as being a dynamic and really exciting place with a lot of opportunity. Um, but I'd be interested to hear what you think um, from your vantage point. I think we're standing on the cusp of an explosion in creativity around media, frankly. I think if you think about uh, the kind of stories, the kind of characters, the kind of, of topics that have been explored through media in the past 50 to 100 years, you'll, think, you'll see that it's pretty small, the spectrum of stories and characters and situations that have been depicted are fairly, fairly small. Um, I think there's a, there's a whole other world out there. There's a much wider spectrum of stories and characters and situations that can be told than we even are aware of. Right? And so if you can create a, uh, a representation, a data-driven representation of that narrative field, you can then, again, challenge, uh, not only challenge creatives to go outside of that, but also uh, demonstrate mathematically that there is a market for extreme innovation in Hollywood, not just in Hollywood, but across media. Sure. Our goal is to make sure that films like Get Out, more of these films get made, not less. And so we want more of these films that, or, or TV shows or products that really push the limit, that really uh, uh, tell different stories for different people, and that can also create the, um, a language. We're, we're trying to create a language that creatives can speak to the people who are funding them to tell the people that are funding them that the risk is not in innovating, the risk is in not innovating because right. audiences want novelty. And if you give them novelty today, is the surest way to make money in media, right? The surest way to yeah. lose money in media is to create something that's been said before, that's been seen before, that's been done before. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, I think, what's what's very exciting is because it can feel, because of our limited imagination and because of what's happened in the past and our, you know, all we have is the data sets that we've gone through before uh, at this point. So when we look out to the future, we don't see that the opportunity for new stories might be, uh, you know, 10, 10 times, a uh, thousand times what we think it could be. So 
yeah, it, it could be so much bigger than we uh, think right now. Um, so, so in terms of uh, mediums, are there any type of mediums right now that you're really excited about? Is it just video streaming content? Is it uh, interactive video, VR, AR, all of the above? What I'm most excited about right now is reality. So one yes. of the most exciting <laughs> things that we're doing at ETC is we're um, having this conversation across the media industry about how do we leverage the internet of things? How do we leverage all of these devices that we have in us and around us and on us and throughout uh, you know, our environment to tell a story at the scale of a city? Um, and how do we integrate that story with linear content, with TV and, and uh, film content, AR, VR? You know, all of these channels are incredible. They're incredible opportunities to tell really completely immersive, really m- amazing stories. And what we think about a lot at ETC and what we're, we're really trying to do research and prototype um, is this notion of telling the story at the, at the scale of an entire city. And, and as you're moving through the city, the story changes based on who you are, what you want, uh, what, what, you know, other people around you are feeling, what, you know, is going on in that part of the city at that particular moment in time. And as you're moving through it, you really, the city talks to you in a narrative way and you talk to it in a narrative way. And what does that look like? And how does that project in a Marvel cinematic universe, for example, right? How do you then, how do you extend the Avengers universe at the scale of a city? That's the stuff that we think about. That's the stuff that really, really excites me because it's, it's, it's way, way more than, than data and, and machine learning. It's really about uh, interaction and relationship. How do you create these relationships sure. that are very narr- narratively driven? That's what we talk about. That's what we, we, we do at ETC. Yeah. And I think what's so exciting too, is this offers an opportunity to go outside of the, uh, you know, outside of the, the walls of social media, basically. So get outside of uh, Plato's cave and, um, or at least this, this offers the ability to turn social media into something that, uh, catalyzes experiences, uh, basically. Yeah. Just look up from your phone. You know, it's something like, I just, it's, it's, I mean, we all have that experience, right? You're, 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 uh, in the getting coffee or you're at the grocery store at the bank and everyone's looking down and you look up and you're the only one looking up and you're like, Hey, I just kind of want other people to look up. Sure. I think I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping we can solve that. That would be a really, really, really good thing. And I think if we can sort of create these, um, I think as, as we, um, get rid of that sort of mobile phone screen interface and we try to embed the story and the content all around us, uh, it gives us a lot more opportunities. Yeah. Mobile phones have made this kind of an either or proposition. It should be both, right? Right. If I could, you know, I mean, you have kids, right? So if we could like play a video game with our kids kind of in the same space together or, or consume, uh, you know, or, or throw a story back and forth between us and them, you know, and, and, and one up each other and kind of a narrative tennis like this possibilities are endless. And I think we definitely need this to, to get back to kind of a societal fiber that we're more content with. Definitely. And I think that there are abilities to connect and then empathize with people in, uh, in whole new ways, right? Because there's, there's something very intimate that happens when you're just watching a movie with like, say a couple of people or, uh, something like that. So I would imagine that the, uh, nostalgia or whatever feelings catalyze of meaning and uh, 
they're, they're just going to go through the roof, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, but also a lot of um, opportunities for manipulation. And, and, and so the dark side of that uh, is very real. And we, we definitely shouldn't uh, uh, should leave it aside. We should really talk about it. We should create institutions around that. Yeah. And um, is that something like the creation of those institutions? Uh, do you think that's going to happen like inside the community? Or do you think that someone outside is going to pay attention? Because I, I just I don't see any regulators paying attention to this, basically. You know, I can tell you the way I want it to, to, to happen. Yeah, no, I would, I'd love to hear it. Through the community. Right? Right. I think, um, you know, it, it's really interesting what's happened in the past 15, 20 years. And then with the introduction of the, of the internet has really accelerated that trend is that institutions have disappeared. They've been replaced by networks, right? So things like the corporation, the nation state, the government, the church, uh, even the military has sort of disappeared as institutions that have really been replaced by networks. Um, <clears throat> and we can't really deal with the networks because they're too complex and we do need institutions. We, we don't need the same institutions that we had 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but we need some kind of institutional framework that isn't, that is in between the network level and the government and the nation level. Right? And those institutions are communities. And I would really love to, um, you know, I would really love to have a more fleshed out, more systematic uh, ability to create communities at the local level uh, or at the city level or at the state level, uh, even at the national level that aren't the government, but that aren't individuals, right, um, to, to really uh, uh, organize around it and um and drive the dialogue both within the community and also between communities i think that's something that i would i would love to see in a more structured manner yeah i think that uh do you think that that emergence will happen around uh shared data collectives where uh, groups of people band together and they all own their own data or they take maybe they join together and get like a, a joint income share agreement or some type of like economic package like that do you think it's going to become very tribal and fractured like that or uh what do you think the future is there of uh local collaboration yeah that's the risk right so the big risk is is that notion that you know uh, communities get created uh with a specific identity a specific flavor and that identity includes rejection of the other communities um and there's definitely a risk of that and so um in with regards to data sharing, um, you know, I'm a big fan of looking at data like taxes. Um, would I, and, and meaning that you 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 have a responsibility to share it. Um, it's your contribution to society, um, because you know, uh, my health data. Uh, I, I would like my health data to be used to um, uh, to, to accelerate uh, cancer cures and things like that. Um, so data is somewhere in between a, an, a complete obligation and but complete, a completely frivolous contribution to society. It is a very substantial contribution to society, but I think everybody should be, and, and we shouldn't necessarily monetize it, or we should only monetize certain uses of it. The solution that I see that's, that's very simple, very elegant, is that uh, we have um, a certain obligation to share 
types of data because they're for the common good, just in the same way that we have an obligation to pay taxes because we've decided as a community that we're, right. you know, that we're going to uh, put it in the hands of someone that we've voted for and then that we, you know, democratically elect and then that, you know, they will be in charge of spending that money. Um, well, this should be the same thing with data with the uh, caveat that um, we should uh, be in full control of what data we decide to share, what data we decide not to share, and what we decide to share the data for, right? So I definitely want my data to be used for uh, cancer research if it can help. Uh, I'm not sure I want my data to be used uh, uh, by corporations to sell me more ads or, or to sell me political ads or things like that. So that, we should have that ability. Frankly, the big issue that I see with that and really is the number one issue for me in artificial intelligence and especially when you think about artificial intelligence ethics is education. Uh, we all need to be better educated about data. We all need to be better educated about how the data is used, about what data is, how it's used, who uses it, um, what it's worth, because sometimes it's really not worth much. Sometimes it's worth a lot and um, what kind of value is created by that data at a societal level. And I think the challenge of AI today uh, is not a technical challenge as much as it is an education challenge because if, if we as a society don't understand AI better, we're gonna make horrible decisions about it and, and it's just not gonna work. Right? And so the, uh, the best way we scientists and researchers can contribute to society is by educating society into what AI is, what data is, what it means, uh, and, and try to create a baseline of understanding so that we can make uh, better decisions collectively about what it is. AI is very, so very cursed topic because it's very complicated and it's very important. And it also lends itself to fantasy very well. So these three factors really don't like, contribute to a very good public perception of AI, but we really have to make, to put more emphasis into educated, uh, educating people who are educated about AI and data. And is part of that education, does it start with maybe correcting the media's portrayal of AI as being you know, negative in almost every instance? Or what's what's that process like? You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say one of the things that I would love to, to do is apply the research that we do to telling a better story about AI. I mean, it's very meta, but but in a, in a nutshell, I think it really would help um, creating a baseline of, of knowledge about what AI truly is. You know, it's really funny because anytime I talk to people about AI, I see the same thing, right? And, and I think it has to do with, and maybe this is something about the human mind that's really interesting is that um, people have seen the hype, they've read the hype, but in their hearts of hearts, they know that it's wrong. Right. They can spot cognitively, they can spot the BS in, in the, the clickbait. And so... Um, it's not necessarily having to walk them back from their current understanding of AI as driven by clickbaity idiocy about AI. It's really um, taking them by the hand. They, they've already, they're not really convinced by it. Right. They know when the media is trying to scare them and when it's like when they should pay attention and when they should. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People are smart. Like they're intelligent. Yeah. Like they, they, they get clickbait generally or not, not everyone obviously, but, but a lot of people, and certainly a lot more people than, than we think are completely aware 
that they're being spun and they're being taken on a walk. And so when I come in and I talk about, no, actually, this is what's going on and this is what's projected to happen, um, people already know what I'm about to say. And uh, so I think there is, you know, and so if we can kind of strengthen that with a baseline understanding of data and AI, I think we're doing really well because people are already prepped for that. They're not convinced by the hype. They're not convinced by uh, just you know, stupid declarations and, 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 and clickbaity headlines. I think they really know that that's wrong, but they don't necessarily know what the baseline is and they don't necessarily know what the reality is. And so being very forceful about that is very important. Well said. Eve, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been awesome. For everyone listening, uh, where can they learn more about you, your work, and your company? Um, etc.org uh, and corto.ai. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the Mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.